The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello, Matt. How are you? Hi, Glenn. Good to be with you again. I am indeed Glenn. Glenn Lowry, this is The Glenn Show, sponsored by the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research in New York City. I'm a professor at Brown University, and I'm with Matt Rosenberg, who is a veteran journalist. Chicago is his beat. He's the author of the amazing book, very provocative and incisive uh, uh, and thoughtful and passionate book, uh, What Next Chicago? Notes of a Pissed-Off Native Son. I've interviewed him at the podcast at the Glenn Show previously about the book. But Matt is just mm -hmm. uh, uh, awash in all kinds of uh, shoe-leather reporting insight from walking around the streets of the city, talking to people and whatnot. In the old school, uh, I don't know, Mike Royko, is that, would that be uh, somebody that you would compare yourself to, Matt? <laughs> uh, kind of a, a veteran, old school journalist kind of way. And, uh, you know, Chicago's my hometown, so. Welcome, Matt. Uh, do you want to add anything else to your introduction? Credits or detriment? <laughs> Only to say that uh, thank you, and that's very gracious of you to say those things and have me on. I would add that we do a lot of data-driven reporting uh, along with the shoe leather stuff, and uh, just that uh, I've been in this racket of public policy or journalism for, gosh, uh, close to three and a half decades now, and uh, lived here for 30 years in Chicago and I came back in 2020, and they have not been able to get rid of me since then. <laughs> I, I've pretty much moved back, and um, I'm super happy to have landed at a great news nonprofit called wirepoints.org, and that is where I work full-time now as the senior editor. And so that has been great. And um, we have some elections coming up here, and of course, we don't take sides, but uh, things are heating up here. Uh, and at some point during our chat today, Glenn, I hope we can talk a little bit about the so-called Safety Act, which is uh, reaching an apex of controversy now that uh, calls for the end, quote unquote, of cash bail on January 1st. And there's a tremendous dispute unfolding here we're fact-checking the fact-checkers, but we can get into that later. There's a tremendous dispute about what it really means and what it doesn't mean. So, okay. Matt, lot, what's going on? Wirepoint.org. Uh, you can find Matt's writing there. And you ought to actually, anybody who's uh, within earshot of this, ought to check him out because uh, what you're going to find there is some very closely detailed, humane fact uh, and uh personality-infused reportage about uh, what's going on, on on the streets of the city. I mean, for example, Matt, if I could just embarrass you for a minute, 
Uh, I read this amazing interview that you did with this African-American graffiti artist, uh, intellectual uh, uh, resident of the city of Chicago, whom you encountered walking through a place. I used to live on 82nd and Green. So I know exactly mm. where 79th and Vincent's, 87th and Vincent's, 95th and Vincent's. I know exactly. I know exactly where that is. And I can't, I'm, I'm saying this, this uh, old Jewish guy walking the streets, you know, kind of running into people, you know, just kind of chatting them up. You know, I, I'm trying to envision what that looks like, what that feels like. But it, it's just what it makes for wonderful journalism. So I, my hats are off to you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I was down. <clears throat> I was down there to go visit uh, Latasha and Ron Fields, who are part of a black homeschooling family. And I saw this incredible mural, which uh, I learned later uh, from Ramon Static, a.k.a. Ramon Barnes, is done in the style of what he calls Afro-constructivism. And it just hit me because it seemed to embody hope and capability. And uh, we ended up meeting for three hours and had an awesome conversation. And I can tell you a little bit more about, about some of the things that Ramon had to say, if you would like me to. I'd love to. Uh, I want people to know, I know Latasha Fields because she and I served together in an advisory capacity to the Woodson Center in Washington, D.C., the uh, nonprofit that's run by Robert Woodson, uh, that promotes mm -hmm. neighborhood enterprise and uh, constructive black development oriented kinds of initiatives, often with a Christian foundation, as I know Latasha Fields is a very mm -hmm. strongly religious woman. God bless her. But uh, isn't that mm -hmm. something? And that's uh, R-A-H-M-A-N, right? R-A-H-M-A-N, Ramon Barnes, right. And his street name had been Ramon Static. And uh, he has a studio, Static, I think with a, with a K, no C at the end. And we met, and boy, we talked for about three hours in his studio in the uh, Bridgeport Arts Center, which is a beautiful building, um, very near the old Trip Light Factory, which is a, another piece of Chicago history. And um, boy, um, he shared a lot. And so I was able to capture that. Um, if I jump well, into it a tiny bit. Yeah, but I want to, uh, I want to, you know, would, his, his art. I want to just to talk about, you know, you say black uh, constructivism is it? I'm sorry. Is that, is that the Afro, right? Afro constructivism is what he calls his style. And if you see one of his murals, uh, and I think in the online version of my story about him, it's there in blazing full color. Um, I mean, you can see it. There's an older guy with a very sort of determined, uh, thoughtful look on his face. Uh, like he's saying, I'm going to do some stuff. There are sort of exultant figures uh, who seem to be celebrating the arts. Uh, and they have kind of a funky flavor, but there's still a determination laced through it. And this is very resonant for us right now in Chicago, Glenn. Uh, another story I recently wrote was about uh, a video put up on the equity uh, a page of the Chicago Public Schools website by an activist uh, who was very angry after George Floyd. And this just went up in late June, and it's basically espousing looting and burning and saying there's no economic hope for blacks, period. It's also asserting that police are routinely killing blacks. Now, mind you, this is on 
the Chicago Public Schools website. So we really had a good look at that and 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 try and critiqued it. Um, so Rahman and his style of Afro constructivism, you know, it's about self determination. Self determination. It's about agency, and we know that you know these are these are huge, almost timeless debates, right? Um, so the context uh, for me was that Rahman had a lot to say about parenting, about becoming a parent too early versus waiting maybe till you're in your 30s. And he talked about how he benefited from elders who helped steer him toward a career and who even used their connections to put him together with the right people when he was 13. He knew he wanted to be an artist practically from the, you know, from the dawn of his teenage years. So uh, his father was an emergency room doctor. He had some very positive influences and he has a lot to say about the state of the community these days. And that was what I was able to capture in my piece. Okay, we're hearing from uh, Matt Rosenberg who is walking around the streets of Chicago talking to people like Rahman Static, uh, who is an Afro-constructivist uh, and who is, as I recall in your write-up, Matt, I did take a look at it, and we should definitely link to this because I want some of those images to be available to people. Mm -hmm. uh, he called it a code. He said they need a code. Isn't that, what he, isn't that the word that he used? A, a, a framework. People need a framework. They need a system of values in order to anchor them in life. Absolutely. And he talked about the mistakes that hot tempered uh, young parents and young men can make. And if it's OK, Glenn, I'd like to read you what I think in a way is the nut graph, the, the key paragraph Good. of the whole piece. Okay. I'd, I'd like to share that because it, it knocked me over. Um, and the framework is he's talking about kids having kids. And yeah, that's an old trope, but. He's seen a lot of that. So what happens when kids have kids? Here's Ramon. It starts with your four-year-old cursing, and you say it's cute. Your five-year-old being an obvious bully, and you victim blame right there. Your 12-year-old son being accused of sexual assault, and you say she wore the wrong clothes. Your kid could never be wrong, and you could never be wrong, you cling on to anything because you have no code, no future. You don't see a future for yourself. And here's the kicker, Glenn. He says, so therefore you start feuds over minuscule things. You start having $5 arguments. You shoot a person because you couldn't cut in front of them in traffic. That's hot delusional entitlement. Right there, Ramon Barnes of Chicago. And I just <laughs> heard that and I was like, damn, <laughs> he's saying it. And I'll give you some context from like last weekend. Once again, we had we had a mass shooting in Washington Park. And I know you know where that is, just oh, west yeah. of where I grew up in Hyde Park. Yeah. Nine, I think it was nine shot or seven, I forget, two dead. And the news has now come out, police are reporting it was due to an argument facilitated by gang rivalries. And while mass shootings, in fact, in Chicago are only about 4% of gun deaths, 
we, we excavated that data also. Um, the real issue here is temper, right? It's, it's those $5 arguments. It's that hot delusional entitlement of which Ramon Barnes spoke. And all summer long, Glenn, I, people here, you know, we talk about trauma, right, at many levels. And there is no trauma like the trauma in the African-American community from the violence, the deadly violence, the shootings. I won't pretend to, to have experienced that trauma myself. But I can tell you there's another trauma of living in the city and the crime is now spreading. And we probably talked about this last time. It's in the white neighborhoods. It's in the suburbs. It's in Evanston now. <laughs> um, uh, it's in Lake County, you know, up toward the Wisconsin border. Eight shootings in one night in Waukegan. They had an emergency community meeting. So there's, a, there's another trauma, which is the trauma of reading the news. And boy, yeah, it sounds like a first world problem. But then you see, my gosh, they're losing Rogers Park in Edgewater. And to non-Chicagoans, and Glenn, you know what I mean, uh, to non-Chicagoans. I know Rogers Park. I know Sheridan Road going up north because I used to, from 1970 to 72, drive it every morning from our, our Donnelly and Sons in order to get to Northwestern University campus. I know exactly what you're talking about. And these, you know, these were Jewish neighborhoods. Yeah. There are high rises there in Edgewater. This was the north side where stuff doesn't happen. And people come home and put some Puccini on the stereo and have a crisp Chablis from Burgundy. And, you know, and now it's... And where I used to see... Excuse me, save Soviet Jewry. I can remember the sign hanging in the 1970s, in the late 60s, hanging above the street, Sheridan Road, all the way across the street. Yes, yes. And now you best be carrying. It's, it's come to that. So uh, it's, it's, it's kind of gone off the hook. I, I call it the great unraveling. Um, Oak Park. Here is a suburb just to the west of Chicago, which you know of well, I am sure, just past the border with Chicago, bordering Austin, the city of Oak Park, where, where they have those Frank Lloyd Wright homes, where Ernest Hemingway grew up. It's and which had for many, and which for many years had been touted as a stably integrated middle-class suburb of Chicago. They worked very hard to maintain racial integration and yeah. avoid the white flight problem from an inner ring urban mm -hmm. suburban uh, town and there has been so much to commend oak park i mean it's beautiful it's leafy there's historic frank lloyd wright homes most importantly what you just spoke of now the city council i i believe i read this has just voted to end late night hours at gas stations because there have been a series of carjackings there so you have a situation where, because of the criminal justice system in Cook County, repeat violent offenders, particularly weapons offenders, and this is so ironic considering all the talk about instituting new laws like, uh, you know, weapons restrictions at the federal level. We are not enforcing existing law against repeated gun offenders because with multiple prior convictions, for weapons offenses, when they commit new weapons offenses, they are too often let out on low cash or no cash 
bail. And then before their new trial occurs, they're out doing more stuff, including carjackings, shootings, and even fatal shootings. Uh, And one night in Oak Park earlier this summer, a brother and sister from the west side of Chicago, young, uh, one was uh, 17, I think, one was 21, they wanted to go jack a car, and they did, and they killed a young woman who was sort of a pillar of her high school community in Oak Park, and that shook everyone there to their roots, but it wasn't an isolated incident. There had been a whole... Whole series of carjackings, and so now they're you're mandating. Breaking my heart. I, you're breaking yeah. my heart, Matt. You, you know, I mean, I'm. I hear death knells. This, this sounds like you could get over into an area where you can't get back from it. Uh, and the other thing I hear is an argument for the Second Amendment. Frankly, and I, y'all can get mad at me if you want to. If the mm-hmm. state will not protect you, you have a right to protect yourself. I mean, I can see that argument very clearly. But can we talk about the first thing? Is my city, my hometown dying? I'm sorry. Can you repeat that, Glenn? I lost a chunk of audio from you. I'm sorry. What I said, can you hear me now, was... Yeah. Is my hometown dying? I said two things. I said, you just made a case for the Second Amendment, in my opinion. Right. Right. And I said, it feels like death nail, the, the, the kind of report that you're giving me. Yes, it might be dying. People are fighting to keep it alive. We'll know a lot more, I'm going to say, by April of this year. Um, In November, we have a gubernatorial election and state legislative elections. It's uh, odds on, but I won't digress into politics. Um, A lot of people feel like it is dying. At the same time, And I should point this out. It may be that we're headed for an extended purgatory. The thing is that Metro Chicago, and you know this well, Glenn, has heft. It has population heft. It has economic heft. And this is still a metro region of some 8 million people. Now, yes, Ken Griffin, the well-known conservative billionaire, moved his uh, hedge fund, Citadel, to Miami. That was significant. Boeing moved its headquarters away. The headquarters was largely symbolic, but importantly symbolic. Other new companies have moved here, as Mayor Lightfoot's office points out. But here's the thing. Downtown is different. Downtown looks like a ghost town. Security card check-ins in office buildings were down to something like 44% of capacity earlier this year, if I remember that report correctly. Uh, Real estate, you know, leasing rates are not really what to look at. It's how often those office buildings are being used. New York is grappling with the same thing. We're seeing articles in Bloomberg about converting office buildings to apartments. And yet, where is the crime rising most in Chicago? In police district uh, uh, one, and Police District 18, which straddle the Chicago River on both sides. So we're talking from 31st Street at the south end of District 1 up to about Fullerton at the north end of District 18. Um, The motor vehicle thefts and the thefts are up dramatically. Criminal sexual assaults are up dramatically uh, in, uh, in the North Loop. Uh, there's a whole lot going on. And so the streets are emptying out. Yep, 
If there's a music festival, the streets may be jammed downtown, but by and large, it's looking like a ghost ghost town. Retailers are leaving. Uh, hotels, historic hotels are being foreclosed upon by the lenders, like the Palmer House. So there are a lot of things, yes, Glenn, that leave people with the impression Chicago is dying. I'm saying don't count it out quite yet, but it's late in the fight. And um, if Chicago were were a boxer, you know, he would be bloodied. And uh, the styptic pencil has been taken out a lot. And, you know, we got to figure it out. Chicago going the way of Detroit. That thought just makes me ill. That's a good spot for me to quote Joe Ferguson. He is the former inspector general of the city of Chicago, Glenn. And in a revealing and important interview uh, with Fran Spielman of the Sun-Times, let me give her credit, a veteran city hall reporter who's been trenchant in her reporting for, my gosh, you know, probably about three decades Uh the ex-inspector general of the city of Chicago, who you'll be interested to know this, Glenn, is now parked at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago, cogitating upon uh, a city charter commission to rewrite the rules for the governance of the city of Chicago, something I highly applaud and have written about. I'm sorry, about. Matt, who is um, doing this? I'm sorry, excuse me. Who is doing this? Yeah. Cool. Joe Ferguson is leading this effort at the Harris School, at the U of C, okay. and he is okay. the former inspector general, you know, which I, I love inspector generals and auditors, right? They're one of the few uh, folks in city or federal or state government who get to tell the truth and who hopefully get free reign to turn over stones, right? So their reports are often a trove of... Uh, of information about uh, corruption, mismanagement, inefficiency, you name it. So he left. He was forced out eventually by Lori Lightfoot. Um, but uh, what he said when he was interviewed by Fran Spielman of the Sun-Times was, look, you know, we're not going to be another Detroit. We're, get, we're too big to fail in certain ways. And if you look at the region, I strongly agree with that, just in terms of the population and the economic cap. But he said, we may be in a Philadelphia situation, is what he said, Glenn. And he described that more as a purgatory, not dead, not really alive, um, too big to totally fail, but, you know, creeping downward ever. And um, I'm afraid that's where we may go. And what happens to the city? In that scenario, it becomes more and more dystopian. Um, and, you know, I could go on. I could talk about what's going on oh. on the armed self-defense front, but I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll take Yeah, I, I want to talk about that. Hold, hold, hold off on that for a minute because I want to stay with this. Because what I want to know mm -hmm. is the role that race is playing, both in terms of the social description, who's committing the crimes, but more importantly, in terms of the attitudes of the residents of Chicago. What about the ethnic communities of Chicago? What, what, what about the, the working class whites? Uh, of Chicago, what what few may be left, uh, uh, you know, uh, what I envision, you say downtown is dying, you say the streets are deserted. So what I envision, I don't know if it's true or not, is a bunch of kids coming in from uh, the west side of Chicago and the south side of Chicago, massing downtown and basically uh, going on rampages and, you know, and, and, and making it uh, a 
someplace you don't want to be coming out of a restaurant at 1030 at night at. Uh, is that is that what's going on? And is it per, is it narrated like that? How does the press report it? Uh, is there a racial coloration to the narrative that's uh, being put forward now about what's happening in Chicago? There is racial coloration. It's far from completely unfair. It has not very much penetrated the mainstream reporting. It occurs more in conversations on social media. There is a lamentation, for better or worse, that the mainstream media and uh, political authorities are scared to death of the real truth. There is a complexion to this. Um, It's not completely black. Um, It's Latino to a degree. Um, but we have what are called street takeovers, Glenn, to your point. And I should hasten to add, you know, downtown is not completely empty, but there is an emptiness to it, which can often be seen. Um, you know, you're still going to have concerts in, um, in Millennium Park and, uh, you're still going to have crowds. Uh, there are still tourists. Very often people don't get accosted, but, um, Yeah, it's more and more dangerous. So there are what are called street takeovers. This has become a thing this year where a group of youths, often uh, largely black, will take over a public beach or a public park. There was a curfew instituted after a shooting downtown at our famous uh, sculpture, The Bean, a fatal shooting there. So there was a curfew instituted. It's not clear it's really doing much good. There's a street racing scene now that's very interesting. But most of all, they're, in my mind, talking about this kind of thing. There have been attacks on police. It's been a bad summer for police. It's now open season on police. Over the July 4th weekend, Glenn, it was very shocking. Uh, Numerous reports of uh, attacks on police video, you know, that was just shocking. And police would come out, say, to break up a street racing scene, and um, people would be smashing the windshields of their cars. There was an Illinois state police trooper on Division Street near the Kennedy who came out to uh, uh, Goose Island um, and uh, where a street racing uh, setup had unfolded, I think, over the July 4th weekend. And they have the video from his car, and you can hear the fear in his voice and you can see it as he reports to his dispatcher. They're basically they're coming for me. And then you see the windshield being smashed. And this was not an isolated incident that weekend. And then we had another bout of this just in um, the last you know three weeks or so. Uh, there's you know dozens of articles and videos online. Uh, from mainstream media, Uh, the street racing scene has really uh, grown here. And I would love to cut those guys a break, as I was telling my friend John Cass earlier this week uh, in one of his podcasts, you know, you think of a Latino guy who's got a good job and saves up money to hot rod his car. And then at night they go out, right? And they race around on the streets and okay, they're blowing off steam, but they're good guys, right? Uh, maybe they're engaged, they've got a job in a factory or wherever. Well, except when the cops show up, they start smashing windshields now. Um, And the thing is, a woman got killed by a street racer too. So it hasn't all been innocuous good fun. 
and it bleeds over into violence against police. So these are all, to me, signs that we have a lot of screws loose. To let, put me, let, me, let me comment. Let me comment. I knew very well the late James Q. Wilson, political scientist, Harvard University. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. He is the author of the Broken Windows Theory with George Kelling that argues mm-hmm. that to maintain order, uh, it argues, among other things, that to maintain order in a complex uh, urban environment, you need to attend to the small things lest they accumulate and the per- perception of disorder promotes more disorder. And uh, I don't know where it starts. Um, maybe it starts with legitimate political figures attacking the police. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe it starts with letting uh, uh, repeat offenders out uh, without pretrial detention uh, who then go on to commit serious crimes. Uh, maybe it's kids that violate the curfew and behave in a disorderly fashion and for which there's no consequence. Uh, maybe it's not enforcing petty criminal offenses because the DA has an ideological predisposition that uh, leads him or her uh, to eschew doing their jobs. Uh, maybe it's political demagogues who think that they can make a career by t- making a mountain out of a molehill whenever there's an a adverse encounter between a police officer and an unarmed minority youth. But if you end up with law enforcement fearful for their lives because mobs are attacking their police cars and nothing is done about it, I don't know, that sounds like the end of the road to me. To top it all off, there's... Um a piece of legislation that will be enacted January 1st here, part of a larger criminal justice reform, and I am going to put scare quotes around reform, a bill that is mostly already enacted. Uh, It was passed, and what it will do is uh, effectively eliminate cash bail. Uh, Now, there's a great... uh, thrumming controversy about what the bill really says, uh, but that is certainly a piece of the perceived end of days here. Uh, We're fact-checking the fact-checkers on that, and we're finding that there will be a very, very high bar for a prosecutor to retain on high cash bail, to detain on high cash bail uh, a violent offender or any offender uh, come January 1. There is also a, a thrumming debate about whether uh, detainees uh, before January 1st who are still in there awaiting trial on uh, high cash bail uh, will be let out immediately or not. And many of the state's attorneys, and we've been talking to state's attorneys and getting their help parsing the actual guts and innards of this 749-page bill passed in the waning hours of a lame duck session. Yeah, like the health care bill, they had to pass it to see what was in it. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I was concerned about my health. My wife was getting on my case, telling me that I should be taking supplements, that I should be doing something 
besides the sloppy eating that I was doing and the lack of exercise that I was getting to improve my health. I wanted better gut health, more energy. I wanted to optimize my immune system. I hated taking pills and vitamins from all those different bottles. I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. Now that I've been on AG1, I love it. It doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health. It helps your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All of the things. What I do is every morning before breakfast, I take my dose of AG1. Uh, it's become a habit. I've incorporated it into my daily routine. It really makes me feel better. I've noticed it abets my digestion. Uh, I feel like I have more energy. It's easy to pack in my bag. I take it with me when I travel. I use it without fail every day. It costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health and it's cheaper than if you uh, were to buy all the supplements yourself. You're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Now, tons of people take some kind of multivitamin and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take care of yourself. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Glenn. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Glenn to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Um, so that's a concern. And one piece of that bill that's already enacted, Glenn, which goes to the potential breakdown of society here is that they appointed a committee to investigate whether to end qualified immunity for police. And that is leading already uh, contributing uh, with other factors to the exodus of police from law enforcement agencies all over the state of Illinois. Um, that's big. You probably know that qualified immunity is basically a doctrine where a police officer uh, cannot be personally sued in a civil proceeding uh, by an aggrieved uh, subject, like someone he arrested, cuffed, maybe even used force on, if he is within the legal bounds of doing his job. Um, 
So uh, the, the contemplation of the end of qualified immunity, even though it has not been ended yet, just the contemplation of it is a huge red flag to many police officers. So there are many things that are leading police to lay back. We are in the throes of major depolicing. Uh, there have also been eight felonious killings of police officers in just the last three full calendar years. Illinois vaulted to sixth highest nationally among the 50 states and I think four territories for which the FBI gathers data on that. We reported on that recently at Wire Points, too. So there's a lot of stuff coming at the citizens and the police, Glenn. Well, I can hear the other side, Matt. I, I don't even know if I have the stomach to uh, try to give voice to it. So there's this tug of war in terms of uh, power uh, as between police and citizens. And the consensus, certainly on the left, certainly in the Black Lives Matter camp, uh, certainly for people who are advocates of racial justice, for the vast majority of my colleagues here at Brown University and others who take this without even giving it a second thought, is that the police have way too much power that they exercise force and brutality and including lethal force uh, in a way that's abominable, that's an abomination, and that they need to be reined in. I mean, I couldn't even, I wouldn't even know how to, as my mama used to say, fix my mouth to try to defend qualified immunity in, in some of these circles because it's so much of a foregone conclusion uh, that uh, a greater degree of uh, leverage to hold police officers accountable is a good thing. Now, I'm an economist. I won't go on for long, but I'll just say this. Unintended consequences, right? If you can't pol recruit police officers because when they make a calculation about the benefits and the costs, they find that, you know, <laughs> I'd rather be driving the truck than doing this. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're in trouble. You're, and the people that you think you're protecting will actually end up being worse off for it. Uh, but I don't know how to get past this ideological barrier, this kind of, if you say thin blue line, did you see that story the other day about uh, somebody with a cap that had a thin blue line in it? And uh, his, apparently his father, his family, they were police officers. And the teacher at school was berating him on racial justice grounds because, you know, he was he was defending the cops. But, but that's how far it's gone. I mean, I don't know. What do you think? Wow. Um, we took a close. Yeah, I, boy, I, I hear you loud and clear, Glenn, and, and those perceptions are very strong. And of course, there have been utterly heinous incidents where police made mistakes. And I would add fatal mistakes. And I would add that this uh, omnibus criminal justice reform bill includes some provisions that nobody is arguing about, including uh, essentially mandating uh, uh, body cameras everywhere all the time in all police departments in Illinois. Um, they have to help fund that. And there is, I believe, funding included for that. Um, you know, so that's important. Uh, and when you look at the body camera footage, you really get some interesting lessons. But let me not jump ahead too far on the question of perceptions of egregious brutality by police toward black men and women, we went to the Washington Post database, which is the authoritative source of police-involved killings. And we found that in the most recent year for which uh, there were reliable data, 2020, 
that 94% of all police-involved killings in the United States involve uh, a victim who had a weapon. And I think it's a, a pretty fair presumption that in nearly all of those cases, they were ignoring orders to drop the weapon. So that right there, to me, serves as likely a large and meaty rebuttal to the idea that the violence uh, uh, police must occasionally perpetrate uh, is unjustified. It is largely justified. People should put down their weapons. We also then looked at the seven fatal police-involved shootings in Chicago last year, and in one of those seven cases, uh, the man was unarmed. I looked at the body camera videos, Glenn, and it's harrowing. The big takeaway uh, a lot of these cases are domestic violence cases that are just a mess right from the get-go, and it made me question why we so willingly send police in there. But then, of course, if someone is about to be slain by an angry boyfriend, girlfriend, or spouse, how can we not send them in there? Um, and, uh, you know, it's just vexing, and it leads me to an even broader point. I've been thinking about things, Glenn, and in anticipation of our conversation today, and I've been thinking about how much we expect police and teachers <laughs> to clean up the mistakes made by parents. And uh, my, 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 my acquaintance, uh, Ramon Barnes, who we talked about earlier, um, talked about willful neglect when you have young parents you know and the mother's a teenager and the father is out on the streets as he put it it's a system as, uh, of willful neglect and the seed is sown right from the get-go so um i think, I think it's about, interesting yeah. i was just going to say matt excuse me for interrupting i i think you're uh mentioning teachers and and police in the same voice is very interesting because they're public employees. They have tough jobs, both of them do. They're unionized and the unions try to pr protect their members, which is their, uh, is their entitlement. But um, they are also working with subjects, the students in school or the kids that are getting into trouble with the law, who are the product of a home where they were or were not prepared to be effective members of society in the school or on the streets. And you say we can't expect the teacher or the police officer to do what hasn't been done at home. And that seems to me to be very, very true. Um, but I, I wonder what you think that means. You don't like this omnibus books, omnibus criminal justice reform package that uh, is coming out, at least some big parts of it. What, what do you think should be done? I mean, where, where do you see any uh, hopeful signs of uh, the Latasha fields of this world, for example, who want to homeschool their kids? Uh, there must be people like that working on criminal justice type issues uh, at the ground level that are are trying to be effective in the in the turn turn the tide. Mm -hmm. It's a tough one. I think uh, there's kind of a default presumption, uh, even on the right, that it has to start uh, at the grassroots. Uh, but it can't just be ad hoc. So then what does, what does it look like? And there's an old default presumption that um, pastors and the church are important 
And I would like that to be true. I'm not sure still what the influence um, of the neighborhood pastors are in the African-American community in Chicago. Uh, I, I sense that it's still there, but uh, probably, uh, you know, the churches are a lot less full than they used to be. Um, so yeah. uh, the schools uh, set its own, but it, it honestly, it comes back to parents. And that's almost, uh, you know, like a lizard chasing its own tail because so many parents just as Ramon pointed out, become parents too early. So I'm not sure what it was, what it is. And we have on the other side of the political spectrum, the usual reliance on community-based NGOs, right? And the whole issuing grants to violence prevention programs, to social welfare programs. Let's not use the word welfare, okay, but social uplift organizations, right? And they're, you know, and that's it. And we get the steadfast insistence that poverty is to blame. And that goes to, to your long running uh, conversation and argument. You know, it's criminality, not poverty. Uh, Rahman spoke at some length, as have others, about culture. And that's an old issue, you know. And I mean, we're channeling Moynihan here, right? But in, in the year 20. 22, on the south side of Chicago, I sat down with this knowledgeable black man who had a lot of street experience, and he told me flat out without, I don't know if he even knows who Daniel Patrick Moynihan is. <laughs> what he told me is Moynihan was right. He talked at length about the culture. He talked about the belief in the neighborhood. Look, there's three ways you can get out of this, man. Uh, hoops rapping or slinging drugs, right? Being a gangbanger. And that now being a gangbanger, even though gangs have changed, we know they're much more micro level. Uh, that could involve criminal enterprises of all sorts. And we see this in the armed robbery crews that make 10 hits in one hour in the north, oh, north wow. side white neighborhoods. This is a thing now. We never had this before. We see this wow. in the organized retail crime rings that are going out to the malls north of the city and west of the city. And this is not unique to Chicago, of course. We know that. But uh, it, it, so, uh, you know, it, it, it goes back to the, to the avenues that are out there. And the, the vision is limited, as Ramon Barnes was reminding me. So, in other words, yes, it goes back to the culture. And Moynihan was right. He's still right. And that's an intractable disagreement that the right will have with the left over that but i just don't know where we go and we're, we're we're not finding the middle ground and we're not solving the problem and so it scares me as to the future of america's cities and yes we have these activist social justice prosecuting attorneys in all our major cities and uh whew, man we're we're just down in it glenn i'm not sure i see a way out and so many people, of course, you look at the out-migration data, the out-migration of taxable wealth, the out-migration of population, this is now breaking down into the kind of thing that Joel Kotkin has talked about. You know, Phoenix, Dallas, Miami, um, they're not at the same level of despair and dysfunction at all 
as Chicago, New York, Milwaukee, Detroit, Baltimore, Cleveland. So the North, <laughs> you know, the North is losing and it will continue to lose population, uh, GDP and taxable wealth. Um, it's just a question of, is it purgatory versus Detroit? You know, how do you commit, how do you commit 10 armed robberies in an hour? You've got a car, you've got three or four guys in it. You target a neighborhood, you target individuals on the sidewalk. So within a, I don't know, a five or six or eight block radius, you jump out two, three, four guys with guns. You seize upon defenseless pedestrians who, you, who are pre-selected by geography and by dress and demeanor. You immediately demand their cell phones and their wallets, basically, maybe jewelry. And you make your hit and you go. And, you know, when you wave the gun in, the, in their face, it's over quickly. Um, and they've documented this, particularly at the website CWB Chicago, you know, and there's like eight bullet points, right, in one story. And they're like, okay, these guys hit on this block and this block and this block and this block. This is a motif. Wow. This is a motif. This is not isolated. This is the new thing. And and now it's, as I said, spreading up to like Rogers Park and Edgewater. And I mean, I walk all over the city and I'm like, damn, can I still do this? So it's bad. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 just nuts. And the carjacking is another thing. We we went into the city of Chicago Police Department's. Uh, all crimes since 2001 database, which is a bit of a beast to wrestle with, but I had some help and we got the carjacking totals, armed vehicular hijacking, it's called, uh, uh, for like about 20 years or so. And we saw that this year we're on track to a new record. Now we'll have to see if that pans out. We did that about a month ago. Um, it's just, it's bad all over. Um, murder is down from last year. Shooting incidents are down. They're not down compared to 2019, which is the baseline year. And we're not including in the uh, weekly uh, FBI part one crime totals. We're not including a lot of stuff, including weapons arrests. Uh, and of course, 60% uh, of non-murder violent uh, you know, criminalizations are not even reported as crimes and something like two thirds uh, property victimizations are not report uh, reported as crime. That's as per the Bureau of Justice statistics, right? I think that the percentage of unreported crimes is going up in Chicago, but we don't know. That, that, let me, I want to ask you something because I'm impressed by the data focus of the reporting that you're doing, you know, and I want you to talk about those unwed uh, mom statistics that you were gathering up at municipalities around Illinois, because I thought that was so interesting. You want to talk about that for a little while? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and again, at WirePoints, and I, I want to give great credit to our team at WirePoints. And there's a guy there, there's the founder, Mark Glennon, there's uh, the president, Ted Dabrowski, and our boy wonder data analyst, John Klingner, they're a great, great help to me. 
Uh, but what we did is we reached out to the State Department of Public Health because I was frustrated, Glenn, in the in the book I did, What Next Chicago, I was able to uncover city of Chicago data on the percent of births to unmarried mothers by race, but only up to, I think, 2008. So, <clears throat> of course, I was, <clears throat> excuse me, scratching my head going, where's the more recent data? So it turned out it lived with the state Department of Public Health. And they were very cooperative, and they had it from, I think, uh, census sources. Um, and it turns out that in Chicago, as of 2020, 82.4% of births to black women were to unmarried mothers. For Latinos, 56% of births. Uh, to mothers were to unmarried mothers. Uh, Twelve percent of white births were to unmarried mothers in 2020 in the city of Chicago, and 10 percent uh, of the births to Asian mothers. So 82 percent of black births in Chicago were to unmarried mothers. Um, that's significant. But then we looked at the 20 largest towns in Illinois. And we saw not entirely dissimilar patterns, uh, particularly in your less well-off communities. Um, and we saw a fairly high rate of births to unmarried white mothers in some, you know, less well-off downstate Illinois towns. Um, but the problem particularly for Blacks, is very pronounced. In Bloomington, an important city in Western Illinois, 79% of Black births in 2020 were to unmarried mothers. In Champaign, which you know well, home to the University of Illinois, right? An important yeah. city in Southern yeah. Illinois, 76% of births um, of black births were to unmarried mothers in Decatur, Illinois, which is a real place to dig into for many reasons, uh, most of them not good. 90% of black births in Decatur were to unmarried mothers. At the same time, 55% of births to whites in Decatur were to unmarried mothers. That's dramatically high. We have mostly well-off whites in Chicago. And now the white middle class, as you said, is gone. And in a roundabout way, that's reflected in this data. Only 12% of white births in Chicago in 2020, white births, were to unmarried mothers versus 55% in Decatur, 50% in Rockford out in Winnebago County. You know, Rockford and Decatur are amongst a class of Illinois cities, and you could probably find this, you know, in Pennsylvania, I, uh, you know, in other Rust Belt states, you know, <laughs> pick up J.D. Vance, right? Yeah. Working class whites are not doing so well. So this is not just a black thing, and we're 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 well advised to remember that. But it is most pronounced amongst well, the black population, yeah, followed let, by Latino. Let me try this. Let me let me try. I mean, it's it's J.D. Vance hillbilly elegy. It's it's also Robert Putnam 
uh, the political scientist at Harvard, mm -hmm. Our Kids, in which he calls attention to the convergence across racial lines of working class cultural issues that are uh, impacting education and family. It's also Charles Murray coming apart. This is a book of a few years ago where Murray uh, makes a similar observation about white uh, higher education people living lives completely different in terms of marriage and family than uh, lives of uh, people, white people with relatively uh, poor education. But, but what I want to ask you is this, uh, Matthew, because you used the word culture. You, you said it, it culture. So is there a white culture and a black culture? Because I'm not sure based on the, these numbers that you're telling me that we're not looking at class and not race when, when we talk about culture. What, what do you think? I think this stuff we're looking at right now, and it's kind of central, it goes more to class than race. Um, I mean, if 55% of white births in, in Decatur, Illinois, and 50% of white births in Rockford, Illinois, are to unmarried mothers, and yeah, I'm going to be judgy, which my liberal friends do all the time. I'm going to say it's a disadvantage uh, when children are born into uh, households with unmarried parents. And the economic data for decades have borne that out in terms yeah. of future adult uh, success uh, metrics. And there's a robust literature on that. So, no, I'm not going to shy away from that. Sorry. Um, it, it, it appears to be more culture than race. It's just that in our large, large cities, um, because of the population distribution being what it is, the white people that we have in Chicago, you know, are educated, uh, well off. They tend to delay marriage, right? Uh, they're professional, many of them. Um, yeah. And so it breaks out differently in your big cities than in a Decatur, Illinois. But even in a Decatur or a Rockford, you can still see there's a hierarchy of uh, by race of who has the greatest amount of this particular class dri driven behavior, um, which is maybe a stilted way of saying things. But um, so there's culture involved. There's culture involved. And a lot of it to me, uh, and this is dry, dispassionate and detached, but it goes to workforce preparation issues, right? Um, uh, you know, how is it that parents can be in the position where they, where they can be more marriageable to begin with, right? And some people would take that right back to school choice, to high expectations education, but you also have to take it back to the home. There are intangible aspects of our modern culture and living, right, that we, we totally do not even have space to get in, into. Here today, but there's this stuff Putnam talked about in some of his earlier books. Yeah, social uh, capital. You know, yeah, community institutions. And I, you know, I had a look at the economic development plans that Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot was uh, touting greatly this summer. A NASCAR race, NASCAR, fast race cars. They're coming to Chicago next summer. It's being presented as a big economic boon. They're going to maybe put a a dome over Soldier Field. Now that the Bears are leaving for suburban Arlington Heights, 
Uh, you know, they're doing other things. They're having concerts. They're having galas. Yeah, she's got a neighborhood economic development program. And there are a few sparkly announcements coming out of that. It's not all puffery, but we're looking at glitz. There's an emphasis on glitz. And my argument in this piece that I researched and wrote about economic development in Chicago was that real economic development be begins with developing human capital. It begins with a solid K through 12 education, vouchers, maybe even education savings accounts. Uh, it begins in the home. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you don't have that, and it begins with blocking and tackling on crime and criminal justice, you know, arrest, convict, sentence, deter. And the whole bail debate overlooks all the other things that have gone wrong. Low arrest rates, uh, convictions, uh, you know, resulting in, in, in trifling sentences, prosecutions being dropped. That's not encompassed in the debate over no cash bail. So economic development flows from a lot of very basic things. And so all of this stuff coming askew the decline of traditional institutions, the ascendance of uh, the digital age, which has brought so many positive things, like our ability to have this conversation now with you yeah. in Providence and, and me in, uh, right near Chicago. But uh, there's so much, you know, behind this. So, so much. Uh, okay, I got to ask you a political question. Uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, is she not up for re-election? She is. The uh, first round of the nonpartisan election will be at the end of February. She has, uh, I think, at least six challengers. Um, and uh, the final runoff between the top two finishers will be in early April. And she has at least two very significant challengers. One is a city council member named Ray Lopez, who I think you know a bit about. Yeah. And the other is a name, I'm sure you've heard Paul Vallis, who was a strong contender. He ran Chicago Public Schools under Mayor Daley. He's done important work in public education in Philadelphia and New Orleans. Uh, I think he ran the budget office in Chicago, too, under Daley or Emmanuel. I know Paul. I've, I'm, I'm, I'm acquainted with Ray, and uh, they're strong challengers. Uh, so we might very well end up with a new mayor. It's hard to predict. With such a large field, Lightfoot could make it through the primary. And people still tend to vote by race in Chicago. And in local elections, nearly two-thirds of registered voters sit it out because we intentionally schedule our Chicago municipal elections in odd-numbered years. It's a very devious thing, the old Democratic machine instilled years ago. It's codified in state law. I have argued in my book and elsewhere for changing state law to allow Chicago to hold its elections at the exact same time as presidential contests, when typically we have 70, 70, 70% turnout in our local elections. So there could be a way that Lightfoot could squeak through, which many people would take as 
the end of days, considering all that has happened during this tumultuous first term of hers. That first term has been a disaster, in your opinion? <sighs> yes. That's to just question. be straight up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, I'll never say she's a bad person. But what I do say, or that she's not intelligent, um, or that she did not have an impressive civic resume. Uh, she, she had all of those things. But a crisis management is difficult. And admittedly, she got thrown two huge curveballs that I guess no one was expecting. One was COVID. And one was the aftermath of George Floyd, which, you know, many other cities struggled to deal with. Um, but uh, we were not ready from the get-go when it got worse and worse. You know, when 18 people were killed on May 31st, 2020 in Chicago, when 106 people were killed in July of 2020 in Chicago in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd, the course was set. And the question then was, would we pull out of this within a few months or a half year or a year? But then, Glenn, 2021 came along. Now, this year, there will be fewer murders than in 2021. And you can see the desperation as she and her police chief, David Brown, hold almost weekly briefings and cherry pick, you know, the, the minuscule shards of data that they can from the crime reports to make it look as though things are improving. The mantra is murders are down from last year. Yeah, a little bit, but last year was a record year, <laughs> uh, a, a recent record year for murders here in Chicago. Uh, they say shootings are down. Well, yeah, but shootings were extremely high last year. Uh, what about all the motor vehicle thefts this year? What about all the thefts? What about the carjackings escalating to, to a new high? So, uh, you know, they're grasping. And her tone, I haven't even talked about that, and I'm sure we won't spend too much time. Glenn, this is a city where hair-trigger temper is an issue. Now, she got up in front of a crowd and publicly said, F. Clarence Thomas. Uh, she has had yeah, numerous outbursts. Uh, there was one that was so vulgar, I can't even repeat it. She said, I have the biggest, insert word for male appendage, in this oh, city. Wow. This was, I, I swear to you, it, it made the press. It went global. And she went on, and she was ripping apart a, 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 an attorney who had been hired by the Chicago Park District to reach a settlement with an Italian-American civic group trying to take Christopher Columbus statue out of purgatory in a city shed and run him on a flatbed truck through a parade on Columbus Day. And she thought that if that happened, police would be attacked because, after all, Columbus is such a provocation to so many people. So she went on this rant which was captured, I guess, through a public records disclosure. And she said, I have the biggest kielbasa. I'll use the word kielbasa. I have the biggest kielbasa in this city. You've got no kielbasa. Wait a minute. Oh, man, that's unbelievable. Yeah, where did you go to law school? She then said to this 
Park District Attorney. The point is, this is easy pickings, you know, for Greg Gutfeld. Yeah, sure. But here's the thing. Well, I'll take you back to Washington Park last weekend. Time and again, guys are losing their temper and shooting each other dead. Now, if you look at becoming a man, the violence prevention program instituted at the University of Chicago with the imprimatur and approval of Barack Obama several years ago, one of the teachings there is to heed the Stoic philosophers like Epictetus, am I saying his name right? And, and learn to control your temper when dudes come at you, right? And disrespect you like they do all the time in these drill, Chicago drill rap videos. You know, you a punk, I'm going to kill you, all that stuff. And then it happens. Guys are always reacting to that. They're always defending their honor with guns. It's what Ramon Barnes said. It's those $5 arguments. So here's our mayor losing her S-H-I-T over all. And there are more and more examples of this. So the woman has come unglued. She is Captain Queeg. She is ah. Humphrey Bogart as Captain Queeg in the ah. Kane mutiny. It's bad, Glenn. It's really bad. And so that okay. just compounds all the extant social dysfunction here. It's bad. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right, and I love this. Uh, I'm going to suggest we call it. It's why I'm going to suggest we call it uh, quits here, because our connection is not so good. Uh, but I, I love hearing from you, uh, Matt Rosenberg. Uh, Wirepoint.org uh, is where he lives, and uh, he's points. talking about Chicago. Mm -hmm. Wirepoints with an S. Dot org. Okay, with an S. Why? Yeah, and thank okay, you, man. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Great conversation. Good to be with you.